Built Not Born, episode 23. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Lieutenant Dan Asper of the United States Marine Corps. Lieutenant Dan Asper, a native of Upper Dublin, Pennsylvania, is a first lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Lieutenant Asper is a motor transport platoon commander and leads a platoon of 35 Marines that are tactical vehicle operators. Lieutenant Asper is a graduate of Texas A&M University, where he earned a degree in political science. Lieutenant Asper also attended Montgomery County Community College for two years prior to transferring to A&M. In our conversation, Lieutenant Asper describes how spending his two gap years at home, coaching a competitive swim team, focusing on his grades, was one of the most transformative periods of his life. I asked Lieutenant Asper how he would compare his local community college, Monco, to a famous school like Texas A&M. I think his answer may surprise you. We also discuss what it's like to lead 35 Marines on a daily basis and what the day-to-day life of a U.S. Marine platoon commander requires. Lieutenant Asper tells us how his childhood conversations with his grandfather, who was a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy in the 1950s, led him on the path to serving in the Marine Corps. We also get into the value of surrounding yourself with like-minded people, like Lieutenant Asper did when he entered the ROTC program at Texas A&M, and the value of leaving the bubble of your hometown to get a new and fresh perspective on the world. We also get into his personal definition of leadership, what historical leader he most looks up to, and how a leader's role is to synthesize information into timely and actionable bits so their team can move forward and accomplish their mission. We also touch on why no matter if you're a Marine Corps lieutenant or work a corporate job in the suburbs, there is nothing more powerful than establishing great relationships in the military and in life. It's so easy to turn on the news today and get discouraged about all the bad news going on. But after speaking with Lieutenant Asper and knowing people like him are emerging as our next generation of leaders, I think we're going to be okay. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Marine First Lieutenant Dan Asper, Motor Transport Platoon Commander, stationed in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And remember, life is built, not born. Lieutenant Danny Asper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? My name is Lieutenant Dan Asper. I am a first lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps, and I serve as a logistics officer. Currently, I am a motor transport platoon commander, which means that I have a platoon of about 35 Marines. All of them are tactical vehicle operators, 
most of our work revolves around training to support resupply missions in a combat zone. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Upper Dublin, Pennsylvania. I went to Upper Dublin High School, the same as my mother, and I lived there for the first 20 years of my life until I moved away. So I want to get into what brought you from Pennsylvania into the Marine Corps, but I want to start all the way back at the beginning. What was it like, if you could think back to say maybe at the dinner table when you were like nine, 10 years old, who was there? What's going on? Dinner table. So could have been a number of things. We could have had a family dinner. We could have had a dinner with the three of us sitting at the countertop where the three of us being me, my brother and my sister, where all of us are getting ready to go to sports practices or do something of the sort where mom's got to make something quick and then we all jet out of the house to go wherever. But when we had family dinners, which we tried to do at least once a week, we would all sit down at the kitchen table and mom would ask us about how our day was and we would say something that resembled, oh, it was good. And then we'd move on from there. That sounds like a 10-year-old. Uh, <laughs> looking back at your childhood, what was the most vivid or powerful memory of your childhood? Most powerful memory from my childhood? I think I've got a couple. My, my grandfather and I used to sit and watch construction when I was a kid. We would get, uh, we'd get donuts from Wawa and we'd watch them tear down the building right across the street from the Wawa in Fort Washington once a month, it seemed like they used to do. And that was always very developmental for me. When I was growing up, I think I got to spend more time with my grandfather than a lot of people get to. And he used to always talk about certain things, certain subjects, we would always have relatively serious conversations. And I think part of that led to my ultimately deciding to be in the Marine Corps is, is having some of those conversations with him. What type of conversations did you have with your grandfather that would lead you to uh, a life of service? Grandpa was in the Navy. He served on, I believe, the USS Robert K. Huntington from 1955 to 1959. So he was a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy and and he would talk about it. He would talk fondly about the times that he had. He would talk fondly about the people that he knew. And he would talk fondly about all the things that it set him up to do. So I, th I think really just the positive experience that he had led me to believe that my experience would similar would be similarly positive. And uh, I just kind of went from there. Did he served in Korea? No, he had just missed Korea. He was. We were out of Korea by late 1953. He started in 1955. He was still in college during the ROTC program. I understand too. Your dad was a Marine. Is that yes. correct? How, yes. how much influence did that have you picking your branch of service? I think it had an incredible amount of influence. The Marine Corps is in the Department of the Navy. Grandpa being in the Navy, kind of, he was always on the side of the Marine Corps because I knew that I didn't want to just specifically be in the Navy. And then dad being in the Marine Corps, that made a big difference just because whenever we would talk about branches of service, he would always discuss the reputation of the Marine Corps and we would always talk about Marines. It was always Marine-centric. We always looked at it and evaluated it through the lens of what it would be like to be in the Marine Corps versus just what it would be like to be in the service in general. Take me from when you were 18 years old, you're a senior in high school. So someone asked you at the start of your senior year in high school what you wanted to be 10 years out. What do you think your 18-year-old version would say? 10 years out from high school, I think I would have said something along the lines of, I want to have done my time in the Marine Corps or whichever branch of service. I would like to have done my time in the service and then be on my way to a graduate degree and getting ready to transition into the civilian world. 
I think you have a kind of a unique story. So you were senior in high school. What's your first move? You graduate your high school. What's your first move from there? So even we'll go back even a little bit before graduating. I, I had applied to a couple of schools, most of them far away, not necessarily realistic. And the one that I could have gone to was both too expensive. And I thought the campus was miserable. And so about halfway through uh, my senior year, I made the conscious decision that I was going to go to Montgomery County Community College for at least a year just to get my grades up, do the stay at home thing, try and figure out what would position me to to best matriculate into an NROTC program. That's Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps program. And then from there, ultimately commission into the United States Naval Service as a Marine Corps officer. And I knew that coming out of high school, I hadn't really set myself up to do that with, at that time, what I considered to be any measurable level of success. So I just nixed my plans to go to college, to go to a far away college or some big college or a traditional college is the best way to put it. And then Montgomery County Community College was probably one of the more developmental experiences of my life. So I spent two years at Montgomery County Community College and I spent three years at Texas A&M. And I think every teacher that I had at Monco, except for one, was better than every single teacher that I had when I was at Texas A&M. That comes from, uh, I think I would base that on three factors. One of them would be there's specifically their ability to teach. One of them would be the enjoyment that they showed for their job. And two of them would was just the level of interest that they were able to garner from the students in their class. I don't think that I was in the political science department at Texas A&M, which is a very research heavy department. A lot of the professors teach out of textbooks that they themselves have written. And I think it leads to a bunch of tenured professors that don't display what I would consider to be uh, a sufficient level of interest in their job. I think they show interest in their field, but in their job as a teacher, I don't think they, I don't think they devote the time to being teachers that the the professors that I had at Montgomery County Community College did. Backing up there a little bit, so you graduate from high school. Two couple things I noticed there, which is pretty cool. You had awareness to know that going to the big traditional college that was real expensive, far away, wasn't for you. You had the courage to pivot, meaning that it's not exactly what maybe I thought it was going to be a year or so ago, your junior year. Put the ego to the side a little bit. You went to community college and you had a fantastic experience and it set you up for a phenomenal career. Yeah, I would say all of that's accurate. My oldest is going through the college process now. And there's so many people that think if you don't go to that big name school that's 60 grand a year, your world's going to collapse. It's just so much into getting to the name school and they got to go away. And, and you actually paused, had the awareness, went to community college, had a, an amazing experience, and it set you up and it launched you forward to the career you have now. So kudos there, man. That is really cool. What's some of the lessons you learned at community college? So you found some great teachers there. How else was that formative to you? Scheduling. How so? So I did school and I had a job. I was I was a swim coach at the Central Bucks Aquatic Club, which was a USA swim program. I coached there for the entirety of my time in 
all of the swim seasons. So I did the indoor swim season through the fall, winter, and spring. And then I did the outdoor season, the long course season in the summertime. So it taught me how to best schedule my time when I've got multiple things that I have to be responsible for. Um, I, I also watched uh, a family of kids. I babysat for a family of kids when I was there too. So I would get home from school, I would babysit. And then I would drive to the pool and I would go coach for the evening. And then when I got back from the pool for that evening, I would do some schoolwork. And that kind of allowed me to understand a little bit more about what it's like when you have more going on in your day versus just whatever the high school workload is, because it got me a little bit closer to what it feels like to be an adult, where uh, I think high school just doesn't plainly just doesn't prepare you for anything even remotely close to being an adult. After you did your two years at Monco, of all the places that you could go to, how'd you wind up at uh, A&M? So Texas A&M had a cool program where if you got, uh, when I went there, it was $1,200 a year in scholarship money. So $600 a semester at a minimum, then they would offer you in-state tuition. So the in-state tuition in Texas is less expensive than the in-state tuition in Pennsylvania. So short of being uncomfortable moving 1400 miles away from my family. It really was a no brainer financially. And because Texas A&M has the, one of the largest ROTC and Air Force ROTC programs in the country. So it put me in a position to be around people that wanted to do the same thing that I was doing, which I think to a certain extent was invaluable. And then I also got to experience a little bit more of the country. Uh, I, I got to move out of upper Dublin. I got to move out of Pennsylvania. I got to see a completely different culture completely different set of behavior. And I I think that also was formative in in the sense that, you know, one, it's exposure to a different way of thinking and a different set of beliefs. And two, it just allows you to, it it adds information to your baseline. So you have the ability to analyze what you want to do with the rest of your life when you come in contact with people that grew up completely differently and have different experiences. That is invaluable. Like travel or living other places and getting out of your little bubble that you grew up in. There is such a tremendous value in that. It's 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 crazy how much that can help. A quick A&M question with the Marines. One of my favorite movies is A Few Good Men with Nicholson and Tom Cruise. True or false, the color guard they show beforehand, the first opening scene is the A&M Marine ROTC. So I don't know the specific answer to that question, whether it's true or false, but I will say that if it's true, they've got a, a drill team for freshmen and then they've got, they've got a, an organization that serves as the honor guard for the governor of Texas. I wasn't a part of it. It, it, was a, it was a separate student organization that people in the Corps of Cadets could have done. And so they also practiced drill. Moving on a little bit here. You're a first lieutenant right now? Yes, that's Okay. Correct. You leave, you're at A&M. Your time at A&M is over. What's your next step from there? So give us the journey of what a Marine Corps officer does. You graduated Texas A&M. What was your degree in? Political science. Okay. Political science. Awesome. You leave A&M. So where, where do you go from there? In, in the Marine Corps, it's a little different than the other branches of service because all Marine officers go to what they call the basic school, which is in Quantico, Virginia. And the basic school was designed in during the Vietnam era when lieutenants would graduate from college, get commissioned, and they would go straight to Vietnam. And they they would essentially assume command of rifle platoons. And so they created a six-month course called the basic school that was designed to teach I apologize. They had the basic school back during World War II, but it it was in a different place and it focused uh, a little bit less so on the provisional rifle platoon command, the style of training that they've got now. 
So they created this curriculum where they taught and still teach to this day lieutenants to be provisional rifle platoon commanders. So you learn the absolute bare minimum basic fundamentals of what it means to perform low-level infantry tasks. So things that would allow you to understand what's happening in a combat environment and then know how to task individuals out to perform their specific function in that environment. You go from there at the basic school, and then the basic school is six months long. So you go to the basic school, then you graduate from the basic school, and you, while you're there, they'll give you your job. They'll give you what they call the MOS, uh, which is shorthand for a military occupational specialty. Your MOS can be one of, I think it's 20, 24 things. And then there's a separate category that they've got for pilots. So the MOS that I received was 0402, which is a logistics officer. So I stayed in Quantico at the basic school for a couple of months until my logistics officer course was about to begin. Uh, and then I came down to North Carolina where the school's located. And I've been here since then. When I hear the, the MOS, is that kind of like in a full metal jacket when they graduate boot camp? When Sergeant Hartman was given everyone's number at the end of graduation, is that kind of like the MOS? That would, yes. And that is their MOS. Yeah. But how much influence do you have of picking that? Can you request something or is that something that's just given to you with no influence of you at all? So officers in the Marine, they set it up. It's a convoluted process, but essentially what happens is there are 300 lieutenants in your TBS class and they break you down into three tiers of a hundred. Every individual in the class will set preferences. Come the end of the cycle, when you're about to graduate, all of the staff will get together and they'll take your preferences. They'll partner those preferences up against a list of allocations, uh, a list of allocations for each specific MOS. Certain MOSs have more, certain MOSs have less. And they'll take, they'll go down by tier. And so the first three picks, MOS-wise, are the first Marine in the first tier, the first Marine in the second tier, and the first Marine in the third tier. Uh, And they do that based on the grading system that they've got set up at the basic school, they say, because they don't want all of the top tier Marines to go to one specific MOS and then all of the bottom tier Marines to go to an MOS that no one wants. So that's how they parcel it up. And so that it's something like 99% of all Marine officers get in their top 10, 96% of them get in their top five and 92% of them get in their top three. Generally people will end up with something close to what they want. It doesn't always work out. The way they have it set up is, is designed to meet what they call the needs of the Marine Corps and still take into account the desire of the individual. You get done the basic school, you get your MOS. What's your next step from there? My next step, I went to Quantico for a couple of months and waited for my course date, the logistics officer course. And I moved down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, because my school was here in North Carolina. And then I stayed with a couple of friends down here while I searched for a house. And then I found my wife moved down here. We moved into our house. We got everything settled. And then about a month after that, I set up, I started the the logistics officer course. How long was that? Three months. Most, Most MOS schools for officers in the Marine Corps are three months. And then a couple of them go longer. So you finish your logistics course. What's the next step? 
So I finished logistics school. I am just put in a holding pattern in, in the battalion that I'm assigned to, which is a combat logistics battalion. And they call it a combat logistics battalion because what it was doing in the previous war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which was running what they called direct support logistics to the infantry regiments. So mm -hmm. the, the regiments are numbered, the combat logistics battalions are numbered, and then you directly support the the infantry regiment that, that shares your number. So I'm a logistics battalion six, so we provide direct to the 6th Marine Regiment, which is also down here in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. If you were supporting them in a combat area, you're saying like ammunition, MREs, that kind of stuff? Exactly. So they we've got different variants of vehicles that we use based on what the requirements of the mission and the, the terrain that they'll be operating in are. Essentially what would happen is, is they would request a capability or they would request a certain amount of supplies based on, they would say, we need X amount of ammunition for the next four days. We have this many people, we have this type of weapons, we need this and this. And then we would be responsible for making the calculations, loading it onto different vehicles and then task organizing a convoy to patrol out to wherever their location was, provide them with that support and that resupply. And then we would come back and then we would run missions like that constantly in support of whatever the infantry regiment's mission set was. They would get to dictate primarily it would be theirs to dictate when, where, and what they got. Take us through the average day of a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. So you, you have 35 people under you. What time you get up? And what, what's the general schedule look like? It varies based on what the platoon has to do that day. So if we have the freedom to, to go do PT that day, then I'll take them out. Either me or one of my Marines will take them out and lead whatever workout they set up or I set up if it's me leading it. We'll do that. I usually start at either 5.30 or 6, usually 5.30 though. And then... They usually get about an hour to get ready for the day. Once we finish, so they'll show up at work at 8.30. We'll have any number of things that we have to do, ranging from maintenance of certain vehicles to inventorying supplies, inventorying spare parts, performing maintenance on trucks so that we can utilize the spare parts that have been requested just based on the systems in the Marine Corps. When things get ordered, it's that unit's responsibility to use those parts as quickly as possible in order to get in order to get things back online, being a euphemism for making them operational. So we'll have any number of tasks during the day and then usually around four o'clock in the afternoon, sometime between four and five, I'll let them go for the day. I'll finish up whatever there is left to do and then I'll head home. I'll do some sort of strength workout and then I'll be basically done with my day. What time do you wake up? If we work out in the morning, if I'm in charge of the workout yeah. that day. Uh, and the, the reason I wouldn't be in charge of a workout is because it gives the younger Marines the opportunity to be in charge of something. There's no better way to take, to, to force someone to take ownership of something than to give them the responsibility for, to give them the responsibility for that task, for the accomplishment of that task. So if I run PT and it starts at 530, I'll be up at 430. And then my day starts at 430. If I don't do PT and I don't have to be at work until seven, then I'll usually wake up at five, read for about an hour, wake up and have my coffee. And then I'll, I'll leave for work around 6.15 so that I can get there by seven. Reading 35 people, what type of situations do they come to you with or what type of problems do you help them solve that are related to their job or related to life? Yeah, it's a lot. Think about how many phone calls you made to your parents the first three months of college. That's essentially what I would equate it to because a lot of them are still 18, 19 years old. 
all they know is what they learned in college and what their parents talked to them about. So if their parents didn't talk to them about certain things, then they just don't understand how to accomplish certain things. There may be a scenario that they, that they feel they're not equipped to handle. And so they'll bring that to you. A lot of them, in a lot of cases, it's medical and financial. If Marines get hurt, then they have to be able to navigate the healthcare system that the Marine Corps has. And even though their benefits will be free, it's still difficult for them to, to advocate for themselves with respect to receiving a, a certain level of medical care or ensuring that the doctors don't just say, oh yeah, I think you'll be okay. Just try this and this without actually providing a legitimate diagnosis for whatever's wrong with them. So we have problems like that. And obviously we have something of a more physical job than some other people would have. So it, it leads to Marines just getting injured with things that, that need to be looked at via MRI, x-ray, anything in that realm. And so they'll end up, they'll end up at frightened isn't the word, but they'll end up not doing something because they don't necessarily know what they're supposed to do, what the first step is. So you're responsible for making sure that they understand that the help that they need exists and you're capable of providing it. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, a little part of the, the interview called Share Your Secrets. So looking back, what's the biggest challenge you ever faced? It's a toss up between making sure that I finished two years at Monco with the ability to get a scholarship to go to a, a school like Texas A&M. And the first couple of weeks where you take over being a platoon commander and you don't have a reputation behind you yet with the Marines. And so it makes it a little bit more difficult for them to understand what your role is, them to understand what your philosophy is, them to understand what they can and can't do, what you want them to do, what you don't want them to do. And so it puts you in a position just to, to be assertive. Uh, and sometimes that's difficult when you're dealing with a lot of people that are the same age as you. Can you remember the first time you're about to address that group of 35 as the leader? Yeah, I was nervous. I didn't know what to say. I don't remember what I said. Um, sure, it was long-winded and unnecessary. Let's <laughs> see. That's where awareness comes in again. Absolutely. We all have those moments where they give you the mic and you have no idea what you said, but you probably spoke too long. Uh, I just had that at work like a week ago. I spoke too long and I can't even tell you what I said and probably wasn't that good. But, but each time you iterate and what happens? The next time you have a little bit more awareness, you iterate, you get a little bit better, a little bit better. And then after a couple months down the road, nothing's perfect, but you got your game a little bit more going, right? You, you, yeah, yeah. And you start to receive feedback from the Marines. You start to understand what they're looking for when you talk to them. They're, you, you start to understand, A, what they're looking for when you talk to them, but also what their, what their tolerance level for being spoken to at a certain time of day. Mm -hmm. um, you could parse it down to just saying you have to be able to read the room, but you have to be able to provide them you can't overload them with information. You have to be able to provide them with, with a reasonable amount of information, a reasonable amount of guidance at any given time so that you can actually be confident there to handle whatever it is you're talking about. And you have to remember that when you're in, when you're the commander, just like when you're the boss, you have, you are always operating with significantly more information than the people under you are. So you need to be able to synthesize it tell them in a given amount of words, you need to be able to provide them with the amount of information that enables them to carry out their task and also provide them with enough to allow them to understand why it is that they're doing what they're about to go and do and, then, and be able to deliver it in a way that holds their attention, 
allows them to listen, allows them to ask questions, and then ultimately allows them to, to accomplish whatever task you're asking of them. You hit it right on the head, man. What leaders do, they synthesize. Like you get all this information and then you basically put it into actionable steps and you give them just enough reasons why. So they're involved, they're included, and they have an idea why they're doing something. That's it. Now, really good. Next question. What failure of yours set you up for future success? Uh, do you have a favorite failure? Yeah, if I have to go back, my favorite failure would be not doing well in high school. That's great. Failing to do well in high school and to a certain extent, just enjoying the time and, and being socially active with all of the individuals that I still keep in contact with today. I think I think my high school career could be characterized as something of a failure from an academic standpoint. But that put me at Montgomery County Community College and Monco put me at Texas A&M. So I, I think... Uh, if I hadn't, I don't think that if, I think that if I hadn't gone to Monco, I, I don't know that I ever would have fully grasped the importance of making yourself look good on paper when it comes to certain things like applying to school, applying for jobs. I think Monco really gave me the, the understanding that not everybody understands that you're intelligent. Not everybody understands everything that there is to know about you that all of the people that you've spent your life with may understand you you have to be able to present yourself in a very short period of time with very limited resources when it comes to applying for schools and when it comes to applying for jobs. So you need to have the ability to take a small amount of information, make it look as interesting and wonderful as possible. And I think that if I hadn't gone to Monco and I hadn't had that opportunity to make sure that my grades and my transcripts were of what I believe is my capabilities, then I don't know that I ever would have understood it at such an at an early time, and I don't know that people would consider twenty to be early, but it's certainly earlier than twenty five. Yeah, and it's way earlier than forty five, where a lot of people are still trying to figure what they what they want to be when they grow up. So yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? A couple of things. One of the things I really like to do is when I come home, my wife and I will sit outside on our patio, and if one of us had a rough day, then we'll both have a drink together and sit out on the patio and whoever had the less tough day will go first. Talking about <laughs> that day. That's awesome. Uh, that always helps me decompress because I always like to talk about what my wife did during the day. My wife's in, in tech sales. She works for a software company that sells their software on a subscription model. So she's on the phone all day interacting with people, but she still works at home. So uh, it does a couple of things. One, it gives her the opportunity to interact with a person face-to-face, which she doesn't usually get to do all day. And I think a lot of people, maybe not now that everyone's been working from home, but a lot of people take that for granted. So it, it gives me the opportunity to let her interact with an individual face-to-face. And it also it also gives me the opportunity to take a step back and decompress at the end of a long day. And, and then we just go from there. But I think my favorite thing to do when, when I've got something like that going on is just to talk to my wife. Oh, that's great. You mentioned reading a couple minutes ago. I understand like right about the time you got to Monco, you became a, a reader. I remember times we came across each other, you were reading some big, intimidating books, which was really <laughs> impressive. They call them scary books and you're reading them. What book influenced your life or changed your mind? So the my favorite book of all is... A, a David McCullough biography of Theodore Roosevelt called Mornings on Horseback. A lot of people talk about Teddy Roosevelt. A lot of people like to cite his man in the arena quote. They like to have a, a baseline understanding of the individual, but 
he's such a dynamic person and he did so much with his life and he overcame physical ailments at a young age that it, it, the story of his life, I think reads like a movie. And so even though the book is a bit dry at times with facts and dates and just the way that a historical biography would be, I don't know that it necessarily changed my mind about anything, but it, it absolutely influenced how I want to develop as a leader and how I want to shape the course of my life following the Marine Corps. TR, just one of the great figures of American history. A couple of things I remember from that book. Whenever he wanted a book, his dad instantly bought it for him. Like he, he mentioned a book and his dad instantly bought it. His dad was really into reading, but then obviously he was sick as a kid and he said, you got a great mind, but a weak body. And his dad created a weight room for him. And he went from an asthmatic and he what? He basically created himself. It's, he's just one of the, the amazing people in history. His wife and his mom died on the same day. And I remember his journal entry that day was like the light has been extinguished or something like that. I found that the light, really, the light has gone out from my life. There it is. What a powerful part. I remember reading that and you just put it down. You're like, oh my God. So when you say the light has gone out, that's it's uh, on the same thing in the same house on the same day they died. Like it was crazy. I think it was, I think it was down the street from one another, but it was Valentine's day. And I think he was 20, I think he was 25 years old. Crazy. Thank you for sharing that. Is there a second one? Is there another book? I know you're great readers. If I were to pick a second one, I would go with a military book. And I would say that The Last Stand of Fox Company by Robert Drury tells the story of Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, which was a part of the 1st Marine Division in Korea. And after the assault on Incheon, they were, they were responsible for defending what came to be known as Fox Hill in, in the Chosen Reservoir. And their company of 220 people defended a, a, a pass against what the Chinese called an army, but essentially a division of Chinese communist soldiers for five days in order to allow 3,300 Marines to pass through the reservoir on what what is now known as the fighting retreat from the chosen reservoir. It's probably, in my opinion, it's the most inspirational combat leadership story. And I, I think if anybody enjoys reading about military history, it's, it's, it's a book that you will not be able to put down from start to finish. From my understanding, Fox Company, as they started retreating, they were basically the last unit there, knowing they were holding the line so everyone else could get out, knowing that they were holding the line, they were probably all going to die. Or the majority, they wouldn't have a high casualty rate because they were basically the blocker so everyone else could evacuate, correct? Correct. It's uh, unbelievable heroism. When your life is going full throttle at its best, what are you doing? Well, I would say there's a lot of outside factors. If my life is going the best, that means that my wife is finding success in her job. It means that the Marines don't have trouble doing anything. It means that none of them have gotten themselves into trouble. None of them have done anything that would require any abnormal amount of attention. Any abnormal amount of attention. No one's done anything to get in trouble or made a financial decision and that caused a setback and then none of them have done anything that, that they didn't understand or weren't capable of preventing themselves from doing. And we're preparing for some sort of an exercise where we where we go over overseas somewhere, not to, there's no combat deployments really going on for the, the conventional military right now, but go over and participate in a training exercise in a foreign environment with a foreign force. And there's nothing better than that. 
What's your personal definition of leadership? The way that I define it, the way that I like to think about it is taking responsibility for the needs of a group of individuals to the extent that it allows them to focus on their mission, their job performance, and individual improvement. So in in the Marine Corps, that that kind of correlates with a certain level of proficiency, which, which the, I guess, the outcome of proficiency then is is lethality capability and survivability in in any sort of environment so I, i think as a leader your responsibility is to think about things so that other people don't have to think about them like i was saying earlier you take a mass amount of information and you synthesize it for them my definition of leadership is being responsible for everything that you can be responsible for everything that you can prevent the marines from having to be individually responsible for and allowing them to focus solely on their job. Obviously, you can't do that 100%. You can't be responsible for 100% of the things that, that they may have to do, but your job as a leader is to be responsible for as many of those things as possible so that they don't have to worry about, I guess it's broad, but anything. What values do you try to pass on to the Marines in your unit? The two big ones are a desire to learn. I try to pass on a a thirst for information is what I called it when I typed it out, but I, I want them to know, I want them to understand that just because they're 18, 19, 20 years old, just because we're not currently at war, doesn't mean that their responsibility to learn their military occupational specialty is any less than it would be if they were operating in a combat environment. I want them to know, I want them to understand that desire to learn, that desire to obtain information and have as much of it as you can at all times is something that will be A, invaluable in the Marine Corps, but it'll also serve you well in life if you decide to get out. Information is power. The more useful you can be in any organization, whether it's training other people to know what you know, being able to lead by example, all of those things stem from your ability to consume information, to consume knowledge. So I always want them to understand that's very high on my list of priorities. And the other thing that I think gets lost sometimes, especially in an organization like the Marine Corps is even though it's about being tough and it's about showing off and being the best and being a good person will allow you to accomplish far more in leadership positions than any sort of competitive mindset will be, especially when it comes to training opportunities, especially when it comes to, I guess you could call them arrangements, but little I'll scratch, I'll scratch your back. If you scratch mine backdoor deals where you get to go and utilize a certain training area or be able to lock on last minute requests for certain things, your ability to be a good person will always serve you better than most other tactics that you may try and apply to whatever that situation may be. No matter what job you're in for someone like yourself serving our country, or if someone has a corporate job, so much of it comes down to a being a good person to the relationships wrapping up here, just three more questions. What advice would you have say for a senior in high school now, somewhere in the country, listening to this, that's thinking about having a a career in the services and maybe not sure what the next step is. What advice would you give them? I would say that Joe's got my phone number. Feel free to reach out. In all seriousness, that's that would be the first piece of advice that I would give them. I would get familiar with Googling 
different word combinations with respect to joining the military and, and figuring out and finding information with, with respect to, to military officership or enlistment programs. I think ultimately Google is going to be better than calling a recruiter, whether it's an officer recruiter or an enlisted recruiter, because they're not going to provide you with the full scope of information. And if you have any individual that's done any time in the service, they're obviously going to be a phenomenal resource for you. I think, um, if you can speak to someone on the phone that's got an unbiased opinion, I, I emphasize unbiased because recruiters are not unbiased. If you can find the, if you have the ability to speak to someone on the phone that's that's willing and able to provide you with an unbiased opinion, that's probably always going to be your best bet. It allows you to ask specific questions. It allows you to receive specific answers. And it allows you to receive information that you weren't necessarily looking for. If you could go back and talk to your family around that dinner table we spoke about earlier when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? I would tell them that regardless of how I perform in high school, don't have, don't lose any confidence in my ability to move past it and become successful in life. (laughs) It's like a stock fund. Every time you buy a stock, they go past performance is not an indicator of future success. Perfect. Yeah, you could give them the Vanguard prospectus. That's perfect. Exactly. Perfect. Last question, Lieutenant Dan Asper. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? He who minds nobody's business but his own is probably a millionaire. Wow. Who said that? Where'd you get that? Can't remember. I read it, I think, on a Forbes article. Wow. Minds your own business. <laughs> yeah, but if you're if I minded anybody else's business, I may not have gone to Monco. I think that any individual's ability to consider only the factors that apply to them whenever they're making specific decisions, I, I think that that that's the highest level of consideration that you should uh, give to any issue. And I, I think swap out millionaire with whatever it is you're trying to be. I've got a million other quotes saved, but that's the one. I have that one set as a reminder on my phone. So I see it every morning at 8.30. Pay no mind to whatever anyone else is doing, especially now that you can be presented with what everyone else is doing at your fingertips on social media, on Instagram, on all this other crap where they'll make it seem like they've got everything going on. Yeah, that's something that I remind myself of that obviously every day at 8.30 in the morning. Your ability to consider only the things that matter to you and only through the lens of personal improvement as opposed to how it looks, how it reads, how it briefs to other people, the one, the happier you'll be, but two, the more successful you'll end up being in the long run. Take care of your own business. Let the noise of the crowd dim and just do what you need to do. Absolutely. I think that is about as good of a spot to end as any. Lieutenant Dan Asper, first off, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. People like you are the backbone of the country. Allow us to live this great life that we live here in the States. So I appreciate all you do. Yeah, I appreciate the, I appreciate having me on. I appreciate the conversation. I enjoyed it. If someone was looking for you online or uh, are you on social media, can they find you anywhere? Or or if they're looking for more about the Marine Corps, where would you direct them? My Instagram and Facebook are both my name, but if anyone ever reaches out, you feel free to provide them with my phone number. You've got it. Lieutenant Dan Asper, thank you. Thank you for all you do. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. Have a good night.